Hey guys, this is Matt here with Lee. Lee, good weekend. Good weekend. I had a horrible weekend. <laughs> yeah. We were all we've all, all been sick and Nora actually ended up in the hospital just to get rehydrated um Sunday night. Y'all and so it, it was it was a tough few days. Y'all had a long month last week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like I've never been more excited to come to work in my well, entire it's, life. Well, it's you know, there's a lot of stuff going around, not just here but in other parts, but um it was a good weekend. Good football weekend. You know, summer's not quite finished with us yet. You know, we, we get teases of fall, and it's a warm week, but uh, beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. It is warm. I'm ready for the cooler temps. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, well, today we're here with Jack Manley, Executive Director and Global Strategist for J.P. Morgan. Jack, you've been at J.P. Morgan for about 11 years. You're regular on, you know, the News Network, CNBC, Fox, Bloomberg, um, tell us, tell our listeners and me and Lee a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, where you went to school and how you got to JP Morgan, where you're at today. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. And it's very nice to be here. Thank you for the, the invitation. Um, you know, I grew up just North of New York city, uh, in a small town called Bronxville. Um, now it's a small town cause it's 6,000 people. A lot of people don't believe that I'm from such a small town. What they don't realize is that it's a square mile. So it's a pretty densely populated <laughs> small town. Yeah. Uh, and it's only about seven or eight miles north of New York City. So uh, while I grew up in the suburbs and I had a lawn and I went to public school, um, I was, you know, within 30 minutes of New York City, my my, my basically my, my entire childhood. Uh, I went to school in Chicago. I wanted to be in another big city. So I was at the University of Chicago, uh, studied history while I was there, which I think kind of takes some people by surprise. It's a little bit unorthodox uh, to land in, in this line of business, but studied history. Uh, and had to write a thesis in my senior year to graduate, uh, decided to kind of build some bridges between the degree and where I ultimately wanted to land, which was finance, uh, and write that thesis about the sort of origins of modern central banking uh, and and the sort of proto-stock markets from the 17th century uh, United Kingdom. I graduated in 2013 uh, and moved right back to New York, uh, where J.P. Morgan is headquartered. So I'm currently based here out of home office uh, and have now been at the firm for a little over 10 years, uh, although uh, with my internship, I guess you could say I've been in the industry uh, for 11. So I've basically been a J.P. Morgan lifer here my entire career. Did my first about two and a half years uh, at the firm doing corporate strategy, so business development, very much like a management consulting type role. I think an easier jump to make into the business with that history degree. Uh, but about seven and a half years ago at this point, uh, I made the transition into my current team, the Market Insights team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Uh, and for the last five years, I have been a, uh, a global market strategist, uh, which does not mean I get to travel around the world, although I do get to go up to Canada on occasion. It means that my focus is global in nature. So I speak to retail and institutional clients across the United States and up in Canada about J.P. Morgan Asset Management's latest thinking on the macro uh, and market backdrop. Very cool. That's awesome. So what is, just kind of for my own curiosity, what is a global market strategist at J.P. Morgan? What is, what's that look like? I mean, what's your day-to-day -day look like? I mean, what are you focusing on it? I love that question because I don't have a day-to-day. -day, uh, yeah. That's exactly how I like it. You know, there's just enough structure where I kind of have an end goal in sight, but I can sort of approach that goal in any way that I want to. You know, I like to divide my job up a couple of different ways. I could say uh, in, in one sort of lens to look at it is that I'm either here in New York or I'm not in New York, right? And a lot of what I do is travel-based. 
Um, I happen to be here this week and next week. It's been a very long time since I've had two two weeks in a row at home. Most of the time, I am on the road traveling. Uh, and then the other sort of lens that you can approach this job from is that I really have three major responsibilities. My biggest one is going to be client communication. So that could be like exactly what we're doing right now, right? Talking to some of our best partners uh, all across the U.S. It could be a very intimate meeting. You know, this is just three of us right now. Could be a big presentation. Get up on a main stage and talk in front of 600 people and anything in between. You know, when I'm not doing client uh, work, I am uh, doing media. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, television. I was on actually Canadian TV yesterday. I'll be on. Uh, Yahoo Finance tomorrow and I think maybe Bloomberg next week kind of taking advantage of being here. We do a lot of TV, uh, a little bit of radio and uh, some print journalism where a, a journalist will call us up and ask us some questions. Uh, and then when I'm not traveling and I'm not doing media uh, or not, when I'm not speaking to clients and I'm not doing media, uh, I'm doing a lot of writing, reading and, uh, and, and research. So you kind of take those two lenses right and slam them together and that matrix will kind of present to you what any day possibly could look like, some combination of those things happening. So say it's pretty exciting. I'd say. Awesome. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, we know you're a, you're a busy man, so we appreciate you taking a few minutes to jump on the call with us today. So just to kind of jump into things, we're going to keep try to keep this to about 20 minutes today. So a question I'm sure you've been asked many, many, many times over the last few years, but um, you know, looking at rates, where they're at, where they were just a few years ago, where we're at today, um, where inflation was at, where we're at today, and just kind of the journey it's been to get us to where we're at, you know, here in middle, late September 2023. Where do you see things going forward? Are you in the camp of, hey, th- you know, inflation rates are going to stay higher for longer? Do you see things coming back down maybe earlier than expected? You know, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation now and not a week ago because <laughs> when the Fed met last Wednesday, it threw me. A huge curveball. Uh, now, to be clear, you know I, I, I've gotten the Fed wrong almost the entire time. I think most people have gotten the Fed wrong. So the fact that the Fed surprised me is par for the course. I should have, I should not have been surprised that I was, I was surprised. Uh, but, but given everything that they announced uh, uh, on Wednesday, this surprise was, I think, even bigger and bolder uh, than than most of the path one, uh, past ones. Which means, frankly, that that the path forward for interest rates, I think, is a little bit more muddy um, than where we have been in the past. When we look at inflation, uh, which should in theory inform interest rates, I do think that there's a very encouraging trend that has emerged here over the last, call it 12, 13, 14 months. CPI inflation peaked in the United States back in June of last year, at least at the headline level, 9.1%, strongest inflation rate we've seen in over 40 years. And every single print since then has been softer than that high watermark. Now, up until June of this year, they were not only softer than that high watermark, but softer than the one that preceded it. So it's like a very clear downward sloping line uh, when it came to inflation. And then things changed a little bit, right? All of a sudden, energy prices move higher. And now we're seeing uh, a couple inflation prints for July and August that have moved higher off of those June lows, leading some people to be concerned about what's going on uh, with inflation. I would say fundamentally that this trend is still intact because what has happened is that inflationary forces have generally shifted from supply oriented to demand oriented. You know, we are not really talking about scarcity anymore in the same way that we would have been 
a year ago when China was locked down with zero right. COVID, when Russia had just invaded Ukraine. There's a lot less uncertainty around those things now than there was uh, a year ago. And the nice thing about supply chain issues is that they always get resolved, right? You build more tankers, you build another bridge, you pump more oil, you make more widgets, whatever it is, you can fix it pretty quickly by just investing. Not so easy to, to sort of solve, quote unquote, the demand issues. So what this means to me is that I do think that this trend in inflation is going to continue where, you know, if we were to get together a year from now, we'd be looking at inflation with probably a, a two handle on it. But I also have to acknowledge that given the fact that there uh, have been some headlines, you know, with this with energy, for example, that the path down to two percent, uh, it's probably going to be a lot bumpier uh, than what we had gotten up on, until this point. So that should, in theory, inform the view on rates. Like I said, the Fed, Fed kind of threw a curveball for me. Uh, the nice thing about the Fed is that while it's been sort of changing things on the margin, uh, every step along the way, the one thing it has been consistent about is that wherever it lands uh, on the Fed funds rate is not where it plans on holding interest rates forever, right? They've always told us they're going to take rates up to restrictive territory, push inflation lower, and then start to cut back down to something that feels a little bit more normal. So I'm still looking for cuts next year, as is the Fed. I'm still looking for cuts in 2025, as is the Fed. I think, though, that given that inflation may persist a little bit longer than we would have expected, and it's going to be tough to get back to where we were pre-COVID anytime soon, that the era of zero interest rates is likely behind us. That was an almost 20-year-long monetary policy experiment. It caused a whole lot of problems, bubbles in the stock market, bond market, housing market, crypto. Some people could argue, I would argue. All of these things because of ultra low interest rates, I think the Fed wants to avoid that in the future. So inflation drifting lower, rates also drifting lower, but getting back down to where we were pre-pandemic, I think is not something on the immediate horizon. And given what you've just said, you know, what do you see as the biggest market risk over the next, you know, three, six months? Well, the funny thing is, if you look at at least recessions going back, um, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, there are always a whole host of things that cause recessions. Um, you know, generally speaking, it could be uh, overextension in certain more cyclical parts of the economy, like the housing market in, in 2008. Um, you know, after World War II ended, there was a massive con contraction in, in, in industrial production that caused a recession, right? Each recession is going to have uh, its own individual kind of uh, um, uh, 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 you know, generator. But the one thing that almost every recession has in common is an overzealous Federal Reserve, a Fed that hikes too much too quickly and ultimately chokes out the economy. And that, I think, is the risk that we are facing right now, especially with what happened to that dot plot last week. So as a quick recap on that, in June, the last time the Fed updated its, its summary of economic projections, which includes that dot plot on where rates are going to be in the future, it told us to expect 100 basis points of cuts next year. As of last week's September's uh, summary of economic projections, it's now telling us to expect 50 basis points of cuts next year. That is a very significant difference. And what it means is that rates are going to stay higher for longer. 
We know that the consumer is already under pressure because of inflation. We know they're dipping into their savings more than they probably should be. We know that they are levering up on credit card utilization. If rates also stay elevated, that I think just puts one additional sort of squeeze on the consumer that could ultimately result in a confidence collapse, uh, which could in turn uh, result in in a recession. So um, it's not a particularly revolutionary answer, right, given the fact that it's been talked about for a while. But I do think that the Fed uh, is probably the single biggest risk to the market over the next uh, six. Do do you think that is priced into the markets right now? Um, and, And if we do go into somewhat of a recession, be it mild in 24, you know, is that built in right now? What sort of impact do you see that having on the the equity and bond markets? So it wasn't priced in a week ago, uh, which is why you've seen so much downward pressure on the equity market when the Fed revised that dot plot. I think everybody basically took the Fed at face value from from the June statement, which clearly in retrospect was a mistake, right? You, you should have known to be on your toes when it came to the Fed because this Federal Reserve likes to keep people likes to keep people guessing. They've been very uh, consistent about their inconsistency, uh, I would say, right right from the beginning. Um, I would say now that we're trading with the stock market closer to 4,300 as opposed to 4,600, like where we were a few months ago, uh, the market has digested the impact of rates higher for longer. There could still be some downward pressure to feel, uh, especially since some pockets of the market are extremely expensive from a valuation perspective. And you, generally speaking, will always see the air let out of the tires a little bit uh, as uncertainty uh, uh, kind kind of uh, uh, mounts. But I do think that a good portion of this change in interest rates uh, has been digested by by markets. But over the long run, right as as I said earlier, um, you know everybody knows rates are coming down. The timeline of that is now a little bit more in flux than it was just you know a few days ago. But the general direction of rates is still pretty clear, and I think that that. Uh, will help to keep markets more or less uh, range bound from here. So, really quick question on this. So, with you and you know, historically speaking, you said the Fed is what typically is pushed just into recession, right? Overzealous Fed getting too aggressive on increasing rates. Do you, in your personal opinion, do you think the Fed is too fixated on their two percent inflation target? Is that the right target? Um, and are they a little too solely focused on that? Yeah, I mean, hey, that's a really important question. Um, I, I would say that a 2% target's a, a perfectly reasonable target. Um, and I think we have to remember that it's been a target since the financial crisis, and that for the, call it 10 to 15 years after the financial crisis, uh, the Fed was perfectly willing to tolerate a persistent undershoot in that target. So they don't have to actually hit 2% to call mission accomplished, right? They can sort of be within the realm of 2%. And if they were willing to tolerate that persistent undershoot for over 10 years, who's to say that they won't be willing to tolerate a persistent overshoot, uh, say, over the next 10 years? That said, I do think the Fed is making a whole lot of, of policy missteps right now. I mean, we could spend the entire podcast together with me complaining about the Federal Reserve. I think they started way too late in this hiking cycle. I think they've overemphasized short rates. I think they have underemphasized reducing their balance sheet. Uh, I don't think they should have hiked after Silicon Valley Bank blew up. I don't think they should have hiked after First Republic Bank blew up. I think you were starting to see some weakness in the labor market. I think you were seeing disinflationary trends continue to build. I don't think any of this is supportive of another rate hike this year or of holding where they are or close to where they are for longer than we had initially expected. But what is so important for everybody to remember is that what I 
I think, what you think, what they think does not matter. It is completely <laughs> irrelevant. This is not a survey. It's not a poll. It's not a democracy. The Fed does not call all these different people and ask them for their opinions on monetary policy. Jay Powell is going to do what he thinks is necessary. I think he is incorrectly fixated on where inflation is right now. I think he's lost the plot and frankly feels like maybe he needs to throw this economy into a recession, which he does not. Um, but just because I'm concerned about it doesn't mean uh, that we shouldn't expect something like that to happen. So I disagree with what they're doing, uh, but that may not change uh, the reality of, of the next couple of years. Sure. Let's let's shift gears just for for a couple of minutes. Given everything that we've talked about, you know, we, we are facing a slowing economy, whether it's a recession or not. You know, there's there's some argument to be made on both sides. What are your thoughts on asset allocation, you know, as we move into a slowing economy? And then part two of that, do you see a shift away from growth? Um, you know, the first nine months of this year, first six months of this year have been driven by, you know, a few select names. The AI boom, you know, caused a tremendous run up, you know, in the NASDAQ. And so as we as we head into a slowing economy, where do you see asset allocations? What's J.P. Morgan doing with regard to moving money around at this point so so for the first time in uh a long time frankly in my whole career but even beyond my career right for the for the first time in almost 20 years uh i think you can say unequivocally that fixed income looks more attractive over the next 12 months than the equity market now that's a very tactical call right but if we're trying to make a tactical call over the next 12 months bonds look better than stocks some of that is from a purely valuation perspective, right? The S&P 500 is trading north of its long-term average valuation. It's a little bit risky. It's a little bit frothy. Meanwhile, bond valuations are about as low as they've been in two decades because coupons are so high, right? You can get 5.5% on ultra-high quality, ultra-short duration. That is a really, really significant hurdle that you would have to bypass in order to take more risk, like, say, in, in the equity market. The other reason why I like fixed income uh, is because I think the macro forces right now are supportive of an overweight to bonds. You know, a lot of investors, I think, after what happened last year, feel like bonds are broken, like they betrayed them. And I think the problem here is that we have conditioned ourselves as investors to think that fixed income protects us against equity market volatility. You know, the stock market sells off. The bond market rallies, right? That's what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be that ballast, that insurance policy, the thing that keeps your portfolio afloat. Uh, but maybe that's not the right way to think about it. Maybe the right way to think about fixed income is that it protects you against economic volatility in the sense that, look, if we get a recession, right? And we've been talking that, about that a little bit on, on, on this discussion right now. If we get a recession, what's the first thing that's going to happen? Fed's going to cut rates. Right. If it's not a really bad recession, maybe it's not going to cut all the way down to zero, but the Fed is going to cut rates and fixed income 101. First page of that bond textbook will tell you figuratively, right? Not literally, but figuratively, it will tell you uh, that when bond yields fall, the value of any existing fixed income instrument that you currently own goes up and you make money in fixed income. That's how you make money in bonds. And that's not what happened last year. We were not in a recession. The Fed was not cutting rates, trying to stimulate growth. It was the exact opposite, an overheating economy, inflation running at a four-decade you know, four, four decade high, Fed hiking interest rates more quickly than it has perhaps ever. And when rates are rising, the value of your fixed income instruments fall and you lose money in bonds. 
So I don't want to say that what happened last year, um, you know, what was good or predictable. I don't think even the Fed knew how how much the Fed was going to do, uh, at least at the start of last year. But at least within that framework, I would say that bonds kind of did exactly what they were supposed to do last year. In other words, they're not broken. And if you look at where they are right now from a valuation perspective, you look at the coupon that you can clip and you assume that over the next two years, rates will eventually move lower from where they are right now. Buying fixed income today, buying duration today, I think makes more sense than buying stocks. All else held equal over the next 12 months. That said, uh, I am still a long-term stock guy, right? Because this is not what the world's going to look like in two or three years. We are not going to be looking at 5.5% on the Fed funds rate forever. The Fed has told us that consistently. So it's not really a, a one or the other. It still has to be a, a question of balance. And that question of balance, I think, is is very relevant for you know your sort of growth versus value uh, question there. Um, you know, as as you pointed out, so much of what's happened to the equity market this year has been driven by a very small handful of growthy tech and tech adjacent mega cap names that have benefited not just from the presumed sort of pivot in Fed policy, but also from this artificial intelligence craze. And these names are are quite ballooned right they're 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 they're, they're very expensive and when we think about growth investing we have to think about what's going on beyond the next 12 to 18 months you know i would never argue that artificial intelligence does not have the ability to completely transform uh, our world in the same way that the internet has completely transformed our world but i would also not expect to see those earth-shattering transformations over the next six to 12 months or 18 months, right? This is not something that's happening tomorrow or next year. These are things that will slowly evolve over the next 10 to 15 years. And you have to remember that there is a difference between the tech makers and the tech takers. Those companies that actually develop the infrastructure versus those that benefit from it. You know, the companies that won the internet, so to speak, 40 years ago are not necessarily the companies that are winning the internet, so to speak, right now, right? The companies that are winning the internet are the companies that have taken advantage of the internet to develop new business models, search engines, online shopping, social networks, right? These people don't make anything physical, but they're some of the most valuable companies on the planet. So you can't ignore artificial intelligence. You just have to be very thoughtful about how you're allocating to it. And you have to realize that it's a long term play. So you've got to be pretty diversified uh, on that front. But over the short term, if we're making, again, another tactical call, I do think this is more of a story, perhaps for value, perhaps for cyclicality, certainly for quality, but above all, active management. This is not a time when you want to necessarily uh, be passive. Uh, in the market, um, because the market at a whole is quite expensive and looking otherwise fairly challenged. Great. Yeah. Last question, because I know we've got a hard stop. So give this 30 seconds if you want. But you you mentioned quality. That's something we've talked about a lot recently to clients. How just how do you define quality? You hear that term thrown around a lot with stocks, but you personally, like, how do you define quality when you're looking at a, you know, an equity allocation? Well, I'd say, first of all, we have to figure out why quality. And to my mind, you know, a lot of it has to go back to what we were talking about earlier uh, with interest rates. You know, if interest rates are not going back down to zero, then the cost of capital is no longer going to be free. It's actually going to cost something to borrow, 
which means that companies have to be a lot more thoughtful about how they allocate their capital in terms of investing. Uh, and investors have to be more thoughtful about how they allocate their capital towards the companies, the stocks that they are, are buying. That's why you need a, a, a bias towards quality, because you can't just buy anything, right? You have to actually put your thinking cap on and figure out what are the good companies, what are the not so good companies. Now, how do I define quality in this sense? I would say a quality company, generally speaking, is going to have a reasonable valuation, right? Doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be inexpensive, doesn't have to be on sale, but you probably don't want to buy a company that's trading at 150 times forward earnings, right? right. That doesn't feel like a, a safe, high quality play to me. That's a little bit more speculative, a little bit more, more growthy. What else does quality mean to me? It means that the company is able to generate stable, consistent, dependent earnings now. Not five years from now, not 20 years from now, but right now at this very moment. And while, of course, it may be subject to a little bit of cyclicality, right, as the economy grows or slows, maybe this company uh, will grow and slow alongside it. But a quality company is not going to have boom bust cycles in terms of earnings. It's going to be stable, dependable, something that you as the investor can count on to deliver you some form of, of, of healthy uh, return um, you know, over the, the, the ownership period of, of the stock. So that's how I think about quality. And that's why I think we need quality uh, in portfolios right now. That's yeah. awesome. Well, Jack, we know you got to jump, but hey, man, we appreciate you jumping on here with us, answering some of our questions. Um, you're a busy guy, so we'll let you get back to it and hope you have a great day. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Right. Take care. Take um, care. Bye-bye. Lee, that was awesome conversation. Jack mainly seems like a Seems like an awesome guy, you know, smart and, guy for sure. And, and it's good having different perspectives. You know, we Absolutely. had a guy from First Trust on a few weeks ago, and then this this gentleman. Um, you know, I think everybody's kind of getting in line with that same thinking of you know the Fed may have you know gone a little bit too far. Um, it may be one of those things where we don't realize it until we're looking backwards. But um, you know, I I think their their thoughts were that you know, the Fed should have stopped a while back. And well, I think the moral of the story, in my opinion, is everyone gets what everyone gets wrong is the timing in which things happen. Correct. Right. And so it's like some things we've talked about this in the best, some things just take a while. And so I, that's where I think the Fed has made its biggest mistake is not giving. Maybe they should have gone to where they're at today with rates. They just shouldn't have gotten there as quick as they did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And let's see how the market and how the economy adjusts and adapts to higher rates. And so um, we've talked about that before. And I think that's inevitably, that's ultimately what probably leads them to going too far is because they just get there too fast. You know, a couple of the takeaways I, I really did like was, you know, fixed income, mm -hmm. you know, and for yeah. the first time Next in 12 months. Yeah. And for like, the first time in gosh, 15 years, you know, fixed income, fixed income is a part of our portfolios and, and, and what we've communicated to our clients is exactly what he was kind of saying is, right. you know, at some point rates are going to fall um, and we want to be on that side of it because, you know, valuations of the fixed income portfolio will go up. And, and then I liked his comments on quality. I liked your question of, you know, how do you define quality? Because you ask 10 people, they're going to get different. Ten, yeah. And I liked his focus on, you know, good, stable earnings um, and a reasonable valuation. And I liked what he said. It doesn't mean it's on sale. It doesn't mean that the stock price is bottomed out. It just means a reasonable valuation, yeah. not, you know, a 150, 200 
PE. So um, right. it was good. A lot of good takeaways that yeah. we can share with our clients. Absolutely. I thought it was a great conversation. So as always, we appreciate you guys joining us today. And we look forward to you joining us next week on The Market Moment. that the hosts of the show are employees of Mach 1 Financial Group. This podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing said in the show should be taken as investment advice. Employees and clients of Mach 1 Financial Group may maintain positions in the securities or strategies discussed. Mach 1 Financial Group, LLC, Mach 1, is an SEC-registered investment advisor located in Rogers, Arkansas. Mach 1 may only transact business in those states in which it maintains a notice filing or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Third-party ratings and recognitions are no guarantee of future investment success and do not ensure that a client or prospective client will experience a higher level of performance or results. These ratings should not be construed as an endorsement of the advisor by any client, nor are they representative of any one client's evaluation. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss, including the loss of principal. Actual account results may have been higher or lower than the results mentioned, depending on an individual's investment timing, cash movement, size of the account, and client restriction. Past performance is not indicative of future results. For full disclosures, please see mock-1financial.com disclosures.